10, 9, 8, 7, <laughs> 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host Ken Milam and John Swan as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. Hi, Dee Dee. <laughs> Hot Farmer 7. Well, these are going to be fun names to talk about. Hot Farmer 7? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, fun times. <laughs> I, I, you guys, you guys and your names are going to kill me. <laughs> um, Dee We got Dee and Timothy. And Farmer Tim. Scott, Hot Farmer 7. Hot Farmer 7. <laughs> uh, I don't know what the... Uh, what do you call that one? S-S-E-L-E-K Sesclair 4? <laughs> Sarike four? I don't know. That's one of those we'll get in trouble because I'll say it wrong and people will be offended. Oh no. Oh, Sue. Hi, Sue. Uh, it's Sue. Sue? <laughs> and there's Dee Dee. Good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try to remember that. And Dee Dee says, Hi guys. Hi, Dee Dee. I guess you saw that saw that already. What the hot? Uh, no. Timoth oh, Timothy. Yeah, that's Timothy. Timothy. Hello, Timothy. How are you doing? Yeah, we can talk. Y'all have to type. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm glad y'all are y'all are doing the typing because I ain't worth a dang at this stuff. <laughs> Interesting. Had gallbladder surgery on Monday. Ooh, Timothy. Ooh, uh, Timothy said they did five holes, and uh, it was a two and a half hour surgery. Yikes, man. I'm glad that you're uh, feeling good enough that you're actually on here with us today. That's awesome. Jake has entered the building. Yes, and Rachel Stone. Howdy, howdy, Rachel. I'm actually surprised that you're on here. Um, <laughs> and I do have uh, our opening question is from Rachel Stone. And that's what we will be starting the show off with here in just a few moments. Rachel's down under. Oh, okay. Okay. Where all the fires are. We got we got California burning and, and Australia burning. There's two fires in Australia. Now, Rachel, how exactly, if I'm planning on opening the show with your listener question that you emailed in, you're going to tell me to hold off for 20 minutes? <laughs> yeah, it just blows the whole opening of the show right there, young lady. Shame on you. Um, I can, uh, if you have a headset and you're going to answer someone else, <laughs> if you have a headset and you're going to actually call in, then I can let you ask your questions in person. But if not, I can go through and read them. But I suppose I can do that later. I guess I will do you this favor this one time. But that's it. Just one. That's all you get. <laughs> hey, she has, has, does your headset have a mic? That's the next question. I will give you time to type. And, so and it's, not, it's not it's not a regular mic. It's just a thing on the in the about uh, where where it comes together, I've got yeah. two or three of those. It can be any kind of uh, any oh, yeah. kind of setup, honestly, it, that hooks into your phone. It can be an actual external mic that plugs into the phone. It can be a mic that's in line with the headset, or it can be like a gamer headset with a little boom mic that comes around the front. Anything like that mm -hmm. works. 
Um, Apple plugs. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Oh yeah. 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 That whole mayor's butt thing. <laughs> I'll save that one for later. Um, all right. So Jake is going to do his first attempt at calling in. So we're going to go ahead and accept him in and, uh, you should be, you should be live, sir. We should be able to hear you. Uh, can you hear me? Uh, we it. can. <laughs> Both of us. All right. How y'all doing? We're good. That's good. How's it uh, doing down warm down there, huh? Uh, we made it to 55 today. Yeah. We, we don't have know, snow. Got, yeah. I think we got hmm. 38, but all my bees were flying. Well, that's because yeah. you've got them like thoroughly insulated. Oh, yeah. Um, how do you feel about not getting to win a fruitcake? <laughs> I'm actually very sad about it. My <laughs> wife has heard it a lot, how sad I am. And I really wish you'd give me the recipe again. <laughs> uh, uh, ready? It's... Did you write all that down? <laughs> well, that's that's the recipe. So I'm going to guess, because again, all I can see are screen names, whatever you guys chose when you signed up with, uh, with Podbean. I'm going to guess this is Hammer. That's just my uh, assumption of HMR9MM8QQVU2R. <laughs> like Hammer? Yeah, yeah, Hammer. Your Hammer. Your Hammer. Oh, what are you doing, I Hammer? I don't know if it actually is or not, but I think. Um, again, like I said, I'm just assuming <laughs> based on screen names. So the, the question on here in the chat, says that I've learned this season that bees will ball their queen to protect her. I previously thought they balled to kill the queen or an intruder. Um, I've now heard they do this when the queen gets spooked for some reason. I witnessed it during an inspection, freaked me out. My question is, what might have spooked her? Um, there is nothing, or there was nothing unusual about my actions. I, you know, there's, there's not necessarily any telling on that, whether or not... Um, it it could be that, you know, even if you just accidentally bumped her, something touching her could have frightened her and she could have then taken off. But they will they will do both options. They will ball up around her in a kind of protective manner, but they will also ball up on things to kill them as well. So if they ball up on the queen and the queen starts screaming, she starts making the the piping type sounds. That is definitely a distress signal. And uh, it does mean that something has gone awry and they are attacking her for some reason. But yeah, they can definitely get on her and uh, go through. <laughs> I need to not look at the screen while I talk, apparently, because then I get distracted <laughs> as I see things move across there. Um, so uh, everybody on the show, you hear us talk about Jake a lot. And uh, Jake is very active on social media and Patreon and email and <laughs> all that fun stuff. So he, he pops up quite frequently and uh, you know, to go way back in time, Jake is the one responsible for sending us the funny little meme about Australia sending rockets into space by simply untying them. That's where oh, yeah, that actually like that. came from. Yeah. Oh. And uh, so that is who we have actually calling in with us at the moment. And you, Jake, you sent a bunch of pictures about your hives all being wrapped up and you oh, were yeah. playing with your thermal camera going through 
getting some pictures of it. And I've seen a lot of that on social media lately where people are out there playing in their, their snow and playing with thermal cameras, looking at their hives. What have you experienced? You didn't know this was going to be questions both ways, huh? <laughs> <laughs> what have you experienced so far with that? Um, do you, do you feel like you're kind of getting an understanding of what's working or um, is it just still kind of a fun novelty? Well, right now I'm going to say it's kind of more experimental, I guess. Uh, the thought process behind it is I went ahead and painted all that insulation black, that foam board insulation was inch and a half thick and wrapped it all around there. And like I showed you in those pictures on the front side where the sun hits it, it was getting up to about 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Good gosh. And, and on the back side, I have a, a wall on the north side and it's a uh, steel. So it's white and it's reflecting to the back side of the hives. And they're getting about, uh, what, 60 to 80 degrees, depending on how long they've been in the sun. So I'm hoping what's happening is, since the insulation is full of a little bunch of little air pockets, right? I'm hoping that that sun heating everything up will help, I guess, the bees thermal regulate in the wintertime. I've been talking with a guy up in Canada, and we've been kind of bouncing ideas back and forth off each other. So I'm hoping that it's going to work for me. Well, the, the good thing is that even having just the insulation on it, period, regardless if it was painted or not, that's going to help hold the internal temperature more steady. So when the temperature swings down and then comes back up, the internal temperature actually takes a longer time to go through and make those swings. And so therefore, it helps them do the thermal regulating that actually, <laughs> my phone's going off, sorry. <laughs> there we go, vibrate. Um, helps you do the thermal regulating that will keep them to where they don't all of a sudden, you know, like have a 30 degree temperature drop inside the container, inside the hive, and that'll help. Now, the the downside with it is that because it is insulation, the foam board, it is going to be partially not allowing that heat to come through because it would be the same concept as your house. You don't want the super hot temperatures from outside to also permeate all the way in. That's why insulating a hive and leaving it potentially insulated in a, like a neutral color all year long actually helps them in the winter and in the summer both because it acts more like an actual tree cavity where you've got three plus inches of solid insulation around them. And in the summer, it helps them keep the inside cooler. In the winter, it helps them keep it warmer and it, it helps mitigate those swings in temperature. So either way, I think you're good. I think that uh, your your colonies, so long as they've got the food and the numbers, they should be just fine. Oh yeah, and on the top of the frames, not uh, up or deep, I went ahead and put a bunch of dry granulated sugar in there as well. And a, a lot of them, just because we have such a long winter here, I don't want them to run out. I'm all paranoid about that, running out of food stores. <laughs> and that's up underneath the Vivaldi board that I got on there now. Sound like me. John keeps chewing me out. Ken, you're not supposed to be feeding two to one right now. I know. Why are you? Because <laughs> uh, I had it at the house. <laughs> but but now next week, John, next week, we're supposed to be getting back in the 60s and almost going to hit 70 next week. Yeah, that's next week, which will be two weeks removed from when we started this conversation. <laughs> yeah, but we've had. I really need a cricket dry. sound button. <laughs> <laughs> it's been dry. It doesn't matter if it's been dry. Okay. They, you know, they, they propolize the inside of that colony to block out all the drafts and all the other things that are going to come through and help or hurt hinder the colony throughout the winter. So if they've done that and they've locked it down to where there's only a tiny little bit of airflow coming in and out, 
you can have a much higher humidity or a much lower humidity that is separate from the outside climate. Okay. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna step on you your, your toes just a second, Jake. Uh, Timothy wants to know where you're from. What where's your bees at? I'm uh, kind of central north Nebraska. There you go, Timothy. Central North Nebraska. He's one of them. Oh, They're corn huskers. Yeah, that's right. what I was thinking. <laughs> Go Big Red, even though they're not doing good right now. No. Ever since the Longhorn slapped them a few times, they just haven't come back from that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I had to throw that one in. <laughs> so uh, we've got Frank on here, and Frank says that he got snow today. Um, but he only deals in Celsius, so he has no idea what 60 and 70 is. <laughs> degrees. Uh, uh, let's see. Zero Celsius is 32 degrees, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's zero is 32. <laughs> so, so when we say 60 or 70, just subtract 32 from it and you'll figure it out. Well, I don't, I don't know that it goes – I don't know that it's that easy. I don't know that it's a simple deduct 32. No. It might be, but <laughs> I don't think it is. Oh, oh. Rachel Stone just entered the studio. Oh, did she come back already? Yeah. Entered are you, are you way up studio. at the top? Uh, she no, did. I'm at the bottom. Rachel, that was a really quick uh, mayor's butt thing that she just had to go do. And that's mayor as in a horse, not as in the mayor of your town. Mayor. Oh. <laughs> mayor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now Rachel's going to attempt to log in. Hey, I got another um, question about the winter feed if I got a chance here. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me throw um, this in here real quick. Um, Rachel is now in the room. Say hi, Rachel. Then we'll jump to Jake real quick, and then we'll come back. Crickets. Nope. I'm telling you, man. Crickets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Rachel. We'll give you a, a minute to figure that out because we can't actually hear you. Jake, go ahead with your feeding question, sir. All right. So there's a guy in Massachusetts that I've kind of followed and paid attention to what he does. And when it gets, it's winter time, right? So when it gets above 50 degrees, I'll go out there and kind of check on the solid food stores by like kind of moving, picking the Vivaldi board up and looking through the uh, inner cover. He's got a screen on there and checking to see how much sugar's in there. Is that advisable to really do during winter time? Like it's say if he sees it low, he'll pop the inner cover off and break that propolis. I mean. Yeah, I mean, it. it's, I think it's kind of more about the placement of where you put such things. So, Ken, what are you messing with? <laughs> I'm not messing with nothing. That ain't me. <laughs> it's not you. Okay. No. Yeah, just, I'm going to blame Rachel. you for, I'm going to blame you for trying everything. to get in. Um, okay. So if you had the food stores above the inner cover, that would be more ideal because then you can open up the lid. You can check down inside there. You can see what the food stores are. If you've been doing a supplemental feeding and not have to actually break the seal of the inner cover to get down below it. If you do open the inner cover, you're exposing the frames. Or potentially, I guess, if the food is directly on top of the frames, that would... No, no, no. Okay, never mind. It depends on how it's actually set up. Um, If it is a feeding box that is directly on top of the frames and then the inner cover goes on top of that, but the box seals the frames off, then you'd still be okay. Does that make sense? Like, as long as the frames themselves are not exposed then you're not letting everything out immediately. You might be having a small opening in the center or along the edges where the heat and humidity and stuff can escape, but it's not going to be all at once. Um, Opening it to where the frames are exposed, that's bad. So if it's 30 degrees, you don't want to be digging through trying to see what food stores you have left in your frames. Um, 
you want to wait until it's warmer to go through and do that if possible. What would be your threshold on a warm fare, 50 or 60? Uh, anything above 50, you could get in very quickly. Just kind of like your bees. If your bees are able to, to jump out and go fly real quick and come back in, uh, well, granted, you, again, also have them, like, uber-insulated, so they're warmer inside <laughs> there than outside. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I yeah, saw them at the house, about, that's about 100 yards away from the bee yard right now, so they're a little nuts. <laughs> All right, Rachel, you want to give it a shot? I saw the thing light up a couple times, but I never actually heard you. Oh, so can you hear me now? Oh, my God, we can hear the beautiful Australian <laughs> accent, yes. Well, that's the key was the accent, remember? Oh, that's right. You're one of them hybrids. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Just like your Africanized bees, I'm just a heart really oh, blowing. <laughs> Does that mean we call you a redheaded mutt? Uh, I am a redhead, yep. <laughs> now, do you take offense to that? Because when I said that in the no. studio one day and Natalie was in there, I thought we were going to get hurt. <laughs> Yeah, no, as a kid, do you remember the Flintstones? Were they in America? Well, Ken might remember the Flintstones, and there was oh, yeah, Pebbles yeah. Flintstone. I spent three years with my hair tied up with a chicken bone in it, and, and they replaced it with a plastic one when the chicken one got a bit smelly. Uh, <laughs> so, yes. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well. So we can ignore the question I emailed you. I've got a more pressing one. Because uh -oh. we're in a real dearth here, so the bee school that I'm going to up the road, he's feeding, he's got all the breeding stock at home, which is like 10 minutes from where I live, and he's feeding those just so that he can create queens and stuff. I went and checked mine, which are about five minutes from my house at the moment, and they were on the point of starvation, and I went, holy beep, beep, beep. Um, and so I given them probably 10 liters or one to one over the last two weeks so how much do you need to feed in a dearth like there's things are flowering but there's just nothing in it and there's not a lot flowering um and it's about to go into hot hot time where probably less will be flowering yeah well if you really what you got to do is is again like i tell ken all the time look inside the colony look inside the comb um, if you're feeding them and then you come back three days later and you do a check and there's no open liquid in the comb, keep feeding them. And you want to feed them to the point where, it, well, okay, let me backtrack just a second too, because it also depends on when your main nectar flows and honey harvests are going to happen. If you have like a little flow and then you have a dearth and then you have a bigger flow and then you have a dearth or something like that, you want to feed them enough that they continue to grow and have enough food to feed the larvae but not necessarily so much that they start capping solid frames of food. If they do cap solid frames of food, you'll never distinguish what is sugar syrup or water versus what is actual honey later when you have your main nectar flow and you do harvest. Now, if you're already done with your nectar flow season, like for us, our main flow is in the spring. So once the summer hits and we hit our dearth, I can go through and I can feed them and then it doesn't matter because I've already done my harvest and I don't have to worry about adulterating anything and getting it mixed in there. So, um, again, if harvest is done, feed them as much as they will take and, you know, make sure that they've got plenty in there. You don't want them to get so much that they become nectar bound because then they're not going to continue raising brood. The queen will shut down laying eggs. Um, but if you do have that potential of honey harvest down the road, then continue doing, you know, kind of one container every three or four days and then check in between there and see 
is there any liquid in the colony? If they've got liquid in a couple of frames, then hold off for three or four days before you give them the next food. If they don't and all the frames are still dry, go ahead and give them another thing of food. Yeah, yeah, because I think our, you see, this is my first year, so I think our main flow is autumn when the jarra and the, you know, the, yeah, the jarra starts to flower. Um, so, yeah, that was my plan is to have a look again on this weekend and, you know, get right into the bottom again and see what they'd filled up, if anything, because there was, there was still larvae in that there, so they were still doing stuff, but there was nothing to feed them with. <laughs> yeah, it, that's, um, that is, they can definitely be a trick. One of the other things that you can tell, too, outside of do they have actual liquid stores in the comb is when they're raising larvae and brood, if you pull out the frame and you look down in there and the egg, or the, the first stages after the egg when they're just two or three days old, if they're laying in the bottom of a dry cell, they do not have enough food. If they're laying in a very viscous pool of liquid, they've got a lot of food. That's one of the ways that you can go through and tell. So your colony may be raising babies and you may have a whole frame or multiple frames of eggs and larvae, but if those larvae are in dry cells, your colony desperately needs food. So that's another way you can go, uh, go through and gauge that. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I got them right on just in time. And I thought about moving them into the city because my friend's colony in the city that I got out of the couch last year, it's going gangbusters. But I thought, no, I'll learn more from leaving it where it is and how to manage it, you know. So I thought, no, and also it's just a pain to move it. So I'll just, because I've got my latest extraction to move next and I'll move that to the city. <laughs> Very cool. We, uh, I'm, I'm watching the chat here as you talk and uh, Jake is going through and, and providing good information because he's asking people questions. Um, Frank is actually from Wales in the UK, so yeah, that's awesome. That um, welcome, Frank. I, you are our first live UK caller <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, technically, everybody on here, with the exception of Australia. <laughs> Sorry, Rachel. When we had Brett on, you know, he, he did get to be our first live via Podbean Australian. Um, but you made it to the first live show, though, and you got to answer your, ask your questions. So you're, you're still good. Catherine still beat Brett, though. Catherine beat everybody because she came to Austin. <laughs> <laughs> She showed up in person, you know, which is such a strange concept now. She was actually here in person. She didn't have to wear a mask because, you know, the world hadn't ended yet. <laughs> it was amazing. And COVID happened in the world. We're going to have a vaccine, though, by, by the middle of summer and everything's going to be. Yeah, I'm hoping. Yeah. So Timothy's saying um, I actually saw Didi had posted some pictures online of this, but they had a bunch of apples that got frozen and then the temperatures warmed back up into the 60s and 70s, and the bees were all over the outer skins of the apples, oh, yeah. drinking up the, the nectar and stuff from the decaying apple, which was really cool. We had a bunch of bees on one of some of our trees, though, that, well, it was been several months ago now. Uh, <laughs> the aphids were count. all over the trees, <laughs> and the bees were up there just, just thick in those trees. And my son, Max, says, oh, why are those are why those bees are up there? I says because they are. What is it? What's the aphid? Uh, what's the? Uh, uh, is it aphid poo? <laughs> it's uh, it's called honeydew. Yeah, honeydew. There, there we go. <laughs> and so the bees were up there taking that. Then there was a bunch of uh, orange winged blackbirds eating the hell out of the bees. <laughs> a circle of life, so, man. Circle. Of life. Yeah, I mean. World, world keeps going on. 
Well, Sue, go ahead, and uh, I've got the paper here, but it, since how you're actually called in, if you want to ask your original question you had emailed, we can tackle that as well. I, I keep saying Sue, I keep mean? saying Sue because I'm looking down here. I'm sorry. So for whatever reason, it ranks people by how much they're interacting in the chat. And so Sue is currently ranked number two, and that's what I keep looking at. But yes, Rachel, I was referring to you. <laughs> At least you don't call me Sharon, which is what most people call me after Sharon Stone. But I keep reminding them I'm the one that wears knickers. But yeah. <laughs> so yeah, my question was, and I have got another tire to go. And this one of the racehorse trainers came up to me and said, "I oh, they keep swarming in my shed, and I now know why, because he had two colonies and tires that were half buried in the ground." And they've just got nowhere to expand, so they keep swarming out of the tyres and setting up shop in his shed. So we got one out last weekend, and then I, I realised I've now got to get them out of that old comb and into nice, clean, proper sheets and stuff. So I've got to shake them down into the bottom and then put a queen excluder in, and then they'll look after the brood that's in the comb that I put in your wonderful rescue bars that work a treat. But... My question was, if you put them upside, if you put the, instead of putting the comb and the rescue bars the right way up, if you put them in upside down, would that stop her laying in it? And then she could move sideways. Cause like I've got in a 10 frame box, I've got, I think eight frames of rescue bars and then four frames of better be comb and um, foundation that she could move sideways into. But the last one I did, she just wouldn't move sideways. She just stayed in this old manky stuff until I did the Bailey comb cane change or whatever it's called. You could definitely give it a shot. I have seen instances where they will allow the, like they'll continue feeding the brood and everything that is in it or keeping it warm until that brood emerges. And then as soon as that happens, you can kind of go through and remove it. If they have other options, I do think that they would probably be more inclined to move to that. But I have seen individuals um, who will remain nameless flip a box upside down because they thought that they were going to chase all the bees out of it and then put a regular box on top of it. And they just thought that they were going to move up into it. And they didn't. They stayed down in that box and all the comb was like helter skelter and upside down. And it started kind of collapsing on itself. And they just built the most intricate shapes in all kinds of directions and fixed what they could and modified it so that it would work. Um, but again, if you have it right beside them and you don't really give her that much time, like if you have it in there and they go through and, and a whole thing of brood emerges and you've got the adult bees, even if she comes back and she just started laying, you could take that out of there and just do away with it and then kind of force them to start having to move over as they go through. Yeah. So is that what you do when you do your, you know, your wicked bee extractions and you take them off to your other apiary, which turns out to be my house block at the moment. Is that the sort of thing you process you go through when you're doing them? Um, I don't do them upside down, but I do. No, not the upside. <laughs> yeah, I do go through and I start off. I only keep four comb, period. So it doesn't matter if they filled up, you know, an entire wall of a house and I could fill up five or six deep boxes of comb. I only keep four comb. That's it. I don't keep anything else. And we try to keep comb that only has the capped brood, the larva, and the eggs. We don't keep anything outside of that. And we also try to select comb that has those things, but is not super, super dark. If we don't have any you know, better options, then we will take a couple of comb of the dark stuff that's been in there for a while. We put it in the rescue bars, we put it into the hive, 
and then we put all the rest of the bees in there, make sure the queen's there and lock her in so that she can't get out through the queen excluder on the front and call it good. And then they start building the new comb. And what we will do is once they get a good supply of the new comb going, we take that old comb and then we move it to an opposite location where it's going to be more kind of encouraging for them to use it to backfill for food stores. So then it can just be harvested out and be taken out entirely. So they only start off with the four. We try to get them up to 10 or 12 before winter comes if possible. And then it's really easy if we go beyond that just to take those four back out. But if it's uh, like a top bar setup, you would start off with those in the front of the hive. And then when you wanted to try to get rid of them, move them to the very back of the hive. If there's any brood in it, that'll hatch out and move up front. They'll backfill it with nectar and then you can go through and take it out and harvest it. And if it doesn't get backfilled, it'll just be empty and then you can take it out and harvest it. If it's in a Langstroth type box, then you put it in the uppermost box. And when they're going through and they're doing their, their heavy flow of nectar, they start in the top and they backfill down. And so if you have the nasty stuff you want to get rid of in the top, they'll backfill that down and then you can take that out and harvest that out. Yeah, the, the ones I put on, they only had brood in it, but I still managed to end up with about eight frames. So I thought, I, you, you feel guilty enough about what you trim off and throw away. <laughs> you keep talking, John. I'm just sitting here reading the the, the stuff going on between our list, the our family, <laughs> our conversations. Yeah, I, I need to go back and, uh, and, and check on that real quick. I know that Jake and um, Frank are having a conversation. Yeah. Um, Sue was asking why only four. And the, the main reason for the four is because that old comb that you're taking from a removal, you have no idea what has encountered the bees or the comb in that space. Homeowners, a lot of times, even though they claim they didn't do anything, they will spray it with, you know, any type of insecticide or poison. There may have been, they may have hired a pest control company to come out and put in a poison dust in there. Um, and again, the comb acts like the liver for the bees. So it absorbs all the toxins and it pulls everything in and kind of holds it. And especially pesticides are oil soluble and that's what the wax is kind of comprised of. So it pulls it in and it holds it in there. And the, the more it gets and the older it gets, the darker it gets. And by the time it's like really dark brown or black, it actually can be toxic. So you don't really want to pull, you know, five boxes, uh, 10 frames each of really nasty dark stuff. You want them to create brand new wax that's going to be better and healthier for them. Now, the other flip side of it that people like Rachel don't have to worry about is varroa mites. And if you take 30 comb of solid capped brood and that colony has a lot of mites, you have taken 30 comb of, oh God, I don't even know the math on that, <laughs> 120 times the power of God knows what mites inside there because every cell that has a mite, one mite goes in and a minimum of three mites come back out. And there's something like 9,000 cells on a deep frame. So that can get really bad really fast. Um, which is one of the other reasons why you don't want to take a lot of the comb. The bees will build new comb. You can feed them the sugar syrup to get them to do that. Um, it's better that they have enough to start off, but they don't need the the full complement. We also don't keep any of the food because the food, we, especially if you're using like the rubber bands or the rescue bars, either one, the food is heavy and it will sag and it will leak. It will fall and break and it ends up causing a big mess. And if you're in an area where you have hive beetles, the hive beetles will move in and foul everything up and your colony will abscond rather than trying to repair and fix things because it's just, it's a lost cause at that point. So that's one of the uh, the other issues of that. So we'll take the food stores 
and we'll render those down into just a liquid form and then we can invert it into an inverted feeder and feed it back to the colony so they still have the resources we just don't leave it in the comb per se jake <laughs> says he's got a question about well, dealing with dark, know about comb. dark comb go for it sir all right so uh, the nukes i got this year came with five old frames as you can imagine pretty dark stuff how do I go about removing that come springtime? Because I figured we need to get rid of that so we don't have any issues later on. Since you were just talking about old honeycomb. The easiest thing to do is to hopefully catch it early enough that they haven't started doing anything. So if it started, are, are these colonies still in a single box or they've got their double boxes, like a deep and a medium? All double deeps. Okay. If the dark, nasty stuff is in the bottom, because that's where it started in theory then it should be fairly easy at the very, very, very tail end of winter, beginning of spring to remove that because your bees are going to spend the winter slowly moving up and are going to mostly occupy your top box come spring. Now, if they've got a ton of food stores and they've done excellent at managing everything, that may not be the case. They may be somewhere in the middle or they may still be down in the bottom box and have a whole box of food above them. But Early on, before they've really started ramping up the production, they are going to be higher up in that box. So you can take everything apart, take out that nasty comb, and go ahead and add in comb that doesn't have anything on it, you know, like your foundation comb or anything in there. And let them, as they start to then grow, go in and build new wax on that, and you've gotten rid of the dark stuff. Now, if you miss that window, and they still have a ton of food down in there, or they've already laid brood in it, then you can go through and move it into an upper position put it into the topmost box. And that way, when they do backfill, they'll backfill that stuff, and then you can extract it whenever you do your harvest. Okay, now, um, how would you go about cleaning the old foundation off? You won't. <laughs> it depends. If you can, you just toss it. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, what do you mean cleaning it? Are you wanting to take it out of the hive, or do you want to break it down, melt it, and clean what's in that, and then use the wax? Now, for me, I was just thinking about removing the frames, pulling the foundation inserts out, and just uh, getting all that old, nasty wax off and get rid of that because it, it's dark. Basically, start off using uh, the hive tool that kind of has the curved into it and just gouge down through there. Depending on what your foundation is, if you've got the solid core plastic foundation on the bottom, you can just burrow all the way into that and rake across it, pull all that wax and gunk off there. Um, one of the things that Frank actually mentioned, which is an excellent, excellent suggestion, yeah, I just saw that is one too. you can use that comb for a swarm lure. You can oh, yeah. put it into a colony. You can actually melt it down. What a lot of times um, a lot of beekeepers do when you're rendering wax, you end up with all that gunk on the top that they call slum gum. And mm -hmm. you can take that and put it into a liquid form and then paint it onto the insides of your swarm boxes and paint it onto like the foundations of frames. It adds the smell of the, the pheromones and the bees and the wax and the brood and everything in there. So that actually works as a really good swarm lure. And if you've painted it onto the boxes, you actually end up where you have a situation where the 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 hive, be not the hive beetles, yeah, the wax the moths can't go in and eat it up. Um, but so, so Jake, the, the whole thing is, if it's wire foundation inside there, just get a knife and cut the whole thing out and either use it as a foundationless frame or you can try to pop back in uh, a new piece of wax foundation or put new wire in there if you want to. If it is the, the solid plastic foundation, again, just gouge it off there. Once you've got the wax off of it, power washer is your best friend. If you don't have one, go to the car wash. 
stick those suckers down and power wash them because you're going to have little bits of chrysalis and cocoon and also little deposits of pollen or bee bread in the bottoms of some of those plastic cells. And you'll want to kind of power wash that out. You can also disinfect it if you want to, if you're worried about any types of disease transmission or anything. But if you know that your colony is healthy and strong and doesn't have that issue, then that's really not so much of a, a concern. But yeah, you can do that, recycle it, and then use it again. Or just put it in your swarm trap and use it for a swarm lure. <laughs> or that. But that's illegal here. So then you watch John's Patreon video of how to render your wax, and then you can use that in your swarm trap because I realized my swarm traps were illegal because I had old comb in them. And I go, hmm, okay, so I'll just do what you did and put the slum gum in there on the foundation. So I'm still technically illegal, but it's a misdemeanor rather than a lose your license fine. Nope, I hear a dog. Who's got a dog? It's because I'm sitting in my car because that's like the only way my toddler won't run do you know how many DJs or, you know, just talk show hosts use the car as the studio now in this pandemic? The studio, the car <laughs> is the best studio you can use. I've used them before. <laughs> it actually, he's true. I mean, that, what he says is true. I know that's a very scary concept. Um, <laughs> just well, playing. Just, the, the car is is it's it's nothing it's designed straight back at you. It doesn't reverb in the car. It just because there's so many corners in a car, it 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 absorbs the sound, so you don't get it bouncing back at you. And I don't. I got a producer that tells me all that stuff. I don't worry. <laughs> Yeah, well, but it, it is true, though, because your your car is ergonomically designed to minimize road noise and other sounds. Mm -hmm. So recording inside your car, there are no sharp corners. There's no, mm -hmm. except for the windshield, but the windshield's at such a weird angle. There's no smooth surfaces to it. There's fabric and all these weird contours. So it actually does, it does really well. Um, so... Now that we've got you on here, Jeffrey Ann, um, Ken, just to put things into perspective, Jeffrey okay. Ann is the lovely individual who sent us the sourwood honey. Oh, that's good stuff. Uh, uh, yeah, that's real <laughs> <Thank> good <you>. stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, that, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, uh, my question was, you know, um, the my bees got eaten by a bear and... Uh, so now I got to do like the electric fence. So how many top bars, like how close can I put the, the top bar hives? So drifting is always a, an issue, but if the hives are at completely different orientations and different colors and the entrances are on opposite ends, then you can kind of get away with it a little bit easier. Um, I have a couple of them that, that people may have seen on social media that are kind of set up like a V shape. And on the narrow part of the V is the entrance on one side. And then the opposite side, the entrances would be actually up at the top of the V. And so they're, they're far enough away from each other facing opposite directions that it's not too big of an issue. So you could do a couple of them. Um, you could probably even get maybe up to four of them in there, depending on the space. I also know you, you don't want to do multiple 
setups either because that could get pretty expensive as well if you're going through and you're actually getting one whole electric setup for this area and then you got to go four hives later go get another one that could be a trick as well so um yeah yeah but you can you know depending on again the spacing between them if you fenced off a big enough area you could put your top bars in there and just have them going you know different directions it'd be the same concept as your as some of the Langstroth pictures you see online where people have them all just in rows but Again, minimizing drift is going to go through and do a lot better than not. <laughs> you won't transmit as many diseases, as many pests, things like that, if you can minimize that drift. Now, one little thing that I had answered a long time ago on uh, listener questions is one of the things that I learned from my friends up in Canada is yes. take yes. a sardine can and leave all the juices and the oil and stuff on the can but have it open obviously no actual sardines in it and hook those to your electric fence it's purposefully going to pull the bear to the fence and the bear is going to bite the can which is going to shock the shit out of the bear but it does it in its mouth and the bear learns very quickly that's not good and now this beekeeper up there who does this says that when the bear sees the shiny cans dangling from the fence, they immediately walk the other direction. Okay. Yeah, I could definitely do that. We uh, bought one that's rated for bulls, so I figured it would scare a bear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, that was that was a pretty uh, sad sight to see um, when you sent those photos over. I mean, it was it was demolished. Now, on the flip side, I don't know if it's better or worse that it was a top bar because the top bar was still standing, but it was yeah, pretty it was. easy for it to rip the bars out of it, you know, to take the bars out. And it was super easy for the bear to eat the comb right off the bar. So there wasn't a lot of anything left, but the hive no. was completely intact. <laughs> like the hive was undeterred. Yeah, that was probably the only comical thing out of it but they uh, i think they just broke one of the latches and that was that was really it <laughs> they just pulled the roof off yep started picking bars out and and they were good <laughs> you know john i never thought we down here in texas all we have to worry about is varora mites we don't have to worry about bears we um no actually i don't think in our area that there's <laughs> uh-uh. there are too many issues with it now, if you were further in West Texas, there would be, but not, yeah, not right South here in Texas, Central. Down, down close to uh, um, Mexico, there's some black bears down there, too. Yeah. Yeah. So Tim had asked while we were talking about the comb, he had gone through and asked that, so they're starting specifically their third year of beekeeping, and they want to know when they should start rotating in new frames of foundation um, so that they can begin kind of cycling it through. So really kind of the, the rule of thumb would be every single year, go ahead and put in one to two new frames and always go from the same side so that you're always putting them in over on the left and you're pushing, you're taking out from the right. So you're pushing everything one direction and that way it'll slowly cycle through as you go. But every season you can go through and put in one or two empty frames on one side, taking the older ones out from the other side. And that will kind of create that cycle for you. Um, If you wait and do it all at once, then a, about the fifth year is about as far as I would go with comb. I wouldn't really go beyond five years, the max. So if you did it, do any rotation prior to that, then take that nasty box again, put it on the very top. Let them fill that with the nectar and the honey. When you do your extraction, that whole box comes off and then you can render that down and get rid of that. Now, Jake, you're actually tied in here 
But you keep uh <laughs> you keep yeah, typing you messages. You're making me read, man. <laughs> well, I don't want to interrupt and be rude. Oh no, you're good, you're good. He's he's good with that. He's he's used to me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Um, go ahead. Ask your question. Oh, okay. Well, basically, you were talking about letting them fill up the old comb or whatever. Will that change the flavor of the honey? It actually does not, especially if it is just the the first year, or you know, like if they just filled it up that season and capped it, and then you extracted it. It's not going to have any effect on the honey whatsoever. What does have an effect on the honey is when you leave it in old nasty comb and it stays there for more than an entire season, um, a lot of times you will find where it does get a very brood-like taste, just about exactly like that comb smells. It'll kind of have a hint of that flavor to it, which is really odd. But those are usually in, um, like we, we've noticed that on hives that we have inherited or found that had been abandoned, and they had multiple boxes on them. And the top boxes still had capped honey. Now, in one situation, depending on what that honey was, the entire thing was crystallized. So there was no way to extract it without actually melting the whole comb and everything. Um, the other ones had really nasty, gnarly, dark comb. And the honey had been in that comb easily for an entire summer, baking at 120 degrees. And so it did pull some of that flavor out of the comb, which was, like I said, it was a little odd. Now, the funny thing, though, is... It depends on how discerning you are. So when I gave that to people who don't work bees and have no idea what broodcomb smells like, all of them told me, no, I think it tastes fine, or no, I don't notice anything, and I wouldn't tell them what they were looking for. But when you would give it to somebody who had more discerning taste, who does actually work with bees and knows these different smells, they would be like, wow, it kind of has like a, almost like broodcomb. <laughs> so it, it can over time, but not just in one season, no. All right, I got a fun one for you. Um, my wife, she's been taking classes on beekeeping, right? Mm -hmm. Well, her instructor said one day that he has eaten drone brood before and she kind of said, prove it. So we did it again and asked what it tasted like and said it was slimy yet buttery. Have any of you ever done that? No. Not me. <laughs> no, stay there. <laughs> Jack Pebbles, <laughs> how about you <laughs> walking around with a chicken bone in your hair? <laughs> Sorry, I was just trying to stop my puppy from getting out of the car while I'm um, getting into my next client. So I'm going to love you and leave you. Thanks for the chat, and I'll listen to the rest of it when I get between clients again. Awesome. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you. Thanks. Love your work, guys. <laughs> Thank um, you. So, Jake, basically what I've heard, I've never – I mean, I know that a lot of – I don't know how to phrase this properly – Native and indigenous people all over the world see it as a delicacy and see it as something that they can go through and eat because it is high in protein and fatty acids and things like that. So it is actually highly nutritious. And a lot of those will literally just pick them straight out of the comb and eat them. But those are also the same ones that will eat a grub while it's still squirming around. And I'm not for that. But there are some, mainly because it, it's wiggling and I, that just it makes my insides twitch. Um, <laughs> so there are some areas, though, where they will take them and they will cook them. And supposedly, if they are roasted, they actually have a nutty flavor to them. They're kind of more like a nut if you roast them up. I think I would be more apt to try the roasted version than the, the live wiggly version. Frank says, um, 
insects are our future. (laughs) There, there are several movies and stories and things out there like that, where roaches are, uh, God, what was that? The polar, no, not polar express. That's, that's Christmas. (laughs) That's coming up. Um, Oh, what is that movie? It's the, uh, Snowbreaker. I think it's a movie in a book. Snowpiercer. That's it. Um, the food source was actually roaches and they were grinding the roaches down and making a protein bar out of them. And then that's what everybody ate and nobody had any idea. And and that's, you know, sorry, spoiler. <laughs> that's one of the things you find out throughout the book and throughout the movie is that that's where their food supply is actually coming from for the lower class people on the train. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, there are way more insects out there than there are people. There was some bizarre statistic that I saw at one point and, uh, you know, statistics are, uh, pretty much made up on the spot so take this with a grain of salt but if there were no i think it was just bats if you eliminated just bats there would end up being so many insects that you would be wading several feet deep in them because bats eat so many insects every night and every day kind of thing um that is that is absolutely creepy (laughs) to think about in the greater scheme of things so but they are plentiful and they are full of protein um hey Dan's online. There's a lot of people on here. They've been coming in and out and uh, yeah, it's been kind of going back and forth. So hello to everybody. For those of you who have just joined, um, welcome (laughs) for for all the little ones that are, that are entertaining themselves. Welcome. (laughs) Oh man. So, hey, there's Frank. There we go. All right, so we're jumping, jumping to the UK. It. Hello, can you hear me, guys? Yes, sir, we can. It took me a while to find my headphones. Uh, sorry about that. No problem, sir. Welcome aboard. We're so glad that you could actually not only just join us to to sit here and, and go back and forth, but actually call in and, and chat with us. That's awesome. Yeah, so thank you so much for having me. It's um, well, it's it's, it's one a.m. in the morning here, so I don't think you're going to get. <laughs> Good oh, you're of, of UK <laughs> listeners, but um, I, I'm seeing up with my dog. She's just had an operation, so I thought I'd tune in and say hello. Oh well, that's. I hope the dog thank is uh, recovering well. And yes, definitely. Thank you for tuning in. Um, oh, no, she's she's fine. She's all good. Um, good. I'll get straight onto the question. I don't want to steal any more time than than I'm allowed. Um, but I'm uh, so I started beekeeping pretty much. I think the same time as Ken. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have mountains of uh, free comb and, you know, all those a- excesses <laughs> to be able to just, you know, build and build and build. So I'm currently going into winter with two full hives and three nukes. And it's December here. I'm aching to get into my bees. And I don't think I'll be able to do it till March, April time. But I'm looking at queen wearing next year and trying my hand at grafting. Um, and I'm looking at trying to get an out apiary. So what I was wondering is a little bit of advice in terms of what colony, what are the, what are the specifics you look for in a colony on it that um, you're looking to breed from and uh, what are your apiary specifics? What, what would you be asking for or offering to people that are willing to lend land? Uh, just any of those questions. Wow. So the land part is going to be really tricky because even just here in our own state, um, it varies drastically both in what resources you would want to have, but also what individual beekeepers do and don't do and will and will not negotiate with. <laughs> so that question yeah. 
runs the gamut for sure. So let's tackle the queen one first. <laughs> um, when you're looking to do queen rearing, there's, you know, the attributes that you kind of want to look for. They can really be tailored to your specific needs. If you're not necessarily so concerned with their temperament, but you're all in it for the honey and you can put up with the temperament, then you can focus on the colonies that do the best at bringing in the stores and actually having better resources or, or better foraging ability. If you're wanting bees that are more calm and tame, then you want to select from that stock. So you kind of have to, this is where keeping the notes really comes in handy. As you go through your year and you look at the colonies and you see where they had their struggles and where they had their successes, you can go through and kind of line those out. And then you can say, well, look, this one colony pretty much has all of the great attributes that I wish all the rest of my colonies had, or I wish the rest of the colonies, you know, emulated this in some way, that would be the colony to pick to then go through and do your grafting from. And the other half of that is completely out of your control, unfortunately. <laughs> so you can select the queen genetics and you can graft from that. And then you can take them and you can set up an out yard or you can, you know, have your queen mating colonies and your nucleus colonies. But if you don't have hundreds upon hundreds of hives where you can set them in strategic places to purposely flood the drone congregation areas, you can't control the other end of what she mates with. So you kind of have to work with what you've got, which will be just the, the characteristics of your individual hives. You're still going to pick up, you know, random genes from, from all the neighboring and surrounding area. And, you know, you just kind of hope that those are beneficial and continue to do what you want them to do. Now, if you go through the queen breeding several seasons or sessions and you start to notice that this one line has kind of veered off in one direction, well then stop pulling from that line and, and go and, you know, pull from another. You kind of call out the ones you don't want and, and continue focusing on the ones that are doing what you would like as far as the different traits. Oh, grafting it. Yeah, Sorry. not a problem. No, no, no. Grafting yeah. itself can be very, very tricky as well. So definitely <laughs> get yourself, you know, like magnifying glasses, headlamps, any goofy looking equipment you can think of, all the different apparatuses to put up on your head, because looking down inside there can be tricky. Doing the tool and being able to scoop the larva out of there takes a lot of finesse and practice. Um, don't be hard on yourself. You will kill way more than you save when you first start that process, unfortunately, as you're trying to get the hang of it. Now, there are some systems out there that people can use if you don't want to physically graft. You can use the um, JBZ, JBZB, something like that. Yeah, we have, we have the um, NICOT. Um, yeah, the NICOTs. Right the, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The okay. So the instructions on those, especially if you bought them and they came from China, <laughs> they're very limited on their instructions. So what you actually end up doing, you put the queen in there and you're supposed to leave the queen according to the instructions for 24 hours and take her out. In my experience, you want to put that down inside the colony and allow the colony to go in, clean it, propolize it, do things to it and polish it up before you ever actually put the queen in that cage. When you do put her in there, don't just leave her in there for 24 hours. You can actually leave her in there for two days if you want to, and then take her out. But you still are going to leave it in there until the third day because that's when they hatch. And it doesn't necessarily tell you that in the directions that come with the actual NICOT systems. It basically says, put the queen in for 24 hours, take them out, and then pop your little, the little cells basically that come out of there that the egg is in 
into the apparatus that's going to hang them upside down on your frames and your bars. But if you do that and you put it into a nursery colony, they are going to cannibalize every single one of those eggs and you won't have any of them actually successfully be raised. The only thing that the other colonies will accept without question is actually hatched larvae. So on that third day, you then pull it out and you hold it up to the light where it's kind of shining through the other side and you look in there and you find the smallest larva you possibly can. And those are the ones that you want to select and then put into the actual system to raise the queens. Perfect. Thank you very much. Really appreciate that. Not a problem. Um, if we were going to try to tackle the the land question. Yeah, if you could. Yeah. So you want to find, as far as an area goes, try to find somewhere that has a wind block that is going to protect them from whichever direction your coldest winter winds come from. If you're using any top of um, foundationless, like a top bar hive, if you ever do anything like that, you also want to make sure that they have shade from midday on so that they don't overheat and the comb doesn't separate from the bars. But if you're doing a standard Langstroth style setup um, or even like a, a long Lang or a, what do they call that other one? Yeah, we, we use Lands. British nationals over here, which are um, basically Langstroth. Um, width, but also the width is the same as the length. So we have yeah, a square, they're a square. Yeah. yeah, British national. So you have a little bit less brood space, basically. But other than that, they're pretty much the same. Um, so the other aspect of region and area, you want to make sure that there's a water source nearby. Um, it can be on the property. It doesn't have to be right beside the colonies, but make sure it is nearby. The further they have to fly to get the water and bring it back is the it's mileage on the body and they only have so many miles on those foragers before they're done. So you want to make sure that they're able to find the water source nearby and bring it back easily. So they're not expending all their energy and flight going back and forth doing that in the hotter times of the year. Um, as far as the landowners go, that can be really, really tricky. So here in the United States, they have started doing where, Bees are considered an agricultural animal, an agricultural commodity, and honey is an agricultural commodity. Because of that, people can actually use bees as an agricultural exemption on their taxes on their land. So that radically changes the game on who wants bees and who doesn't. For those individuals, we usually advise people, and not everybody does it, but we usually advise people, there needs to be some sort of monetary contribution to that you're not just putting hives on their land unless you're desperate and need the space. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. Um, but you're not just putting hives on their land so that they benefit and save thousands and thousands of dollars. And you don't necessarily get anything out of it because when you enter into that type of agreement, they need the bees because they want the exemption. That doesn't mean that their land can support the bees or support the number of colonies that the exemption may require for them to qualify so if that's the case and you're leasing your bees and they're truly yours, you may spend the entire year and the entire life of those colonies doing nothing but constantly feeding them. And you get no honey hunt from them. You, you have no harvest. You might be able to use them as brood producers and just continually steal the brood from them and take it to make nukes or take it to bolster up other colonies in areas where there is a more of a forage and a nectar flow. So you can do things like that. But that's why we usually say, there needs to be some sort of monetary contribution. Now, if over there, if there is no such thing as, you know, taxes that would be able to be mitigated with colonies yeah, such as bees. We're, um, we're, we're currently at a, a weird point politically because uh, a lot of our agricultural stuff came from 
the EU. So now we've just left that. We're kind of like rolling a dice and waiting to see what happens a bit. Yeah, sketchy. <laughs> yeah. We know exactly what that feels like. <laughs> you guys are in a much better position now. Like from what from what it looks like over here, we're going. Oh, yeah, we could we could do a similar thing. We'd be real happy. Yeah, but yeah. Well, so since how you like, let's take um, let's take the agricultural concept of it out entirely. If you're just looking for a place to put your bees, then yeah. the best thing for you is going to be finding somebody who's okay with it, who does not use any pesticides or anything on their land, and hopefully nobody right there adjacent to them does either. There's plenty of forage. You've got a water source. You've got the trees, and they are amicable to the arrangement. If that works out, a lot of times you can literally get away with, I will give you X amount of honey from the harvest, and it can be a percentage. It can be a set amount. The downside to a set amount is if it's a bad year, <laughs> you've still guaranteed them a set amount. So a percentage does better. Um, and and then it's it's everybody's happy. There's bees out there. If they have some sort of farm, if they grow, you know, vegetables or anything like that, then it's a boon to them. And they're actually pollinating their crops, pollinating their orchards. And you then give them some honey afterwards and all the rest is yours. And you have a place to put the bees. So that's kind of the best win-win scenario that you can come up with. And that would kind of be what I would try to find if you can. Desperate situations kind of put you in a not great position because then you're the first place you can find really where you can put them, you do, but it doesn't mean it's the best place necessarily for the bees. Yeah, of course. I'll have to go, well, I've, I was my plan this year was to go knocking on some doors and asking, but unfortunately I've had to keep my distance from most people. So uh I was considering getting a drone and flying it around to see if there was any good forage around, but uh, have to have a have to get on the Google Maps see what I can see. You know that actually the drone is not a bad idea. Um, one of these days, I'm going to have one so that I can play with it. And you know, from from the simplest aspect, like for me, my main honey apiary is on a. Uh, I used to be able to say an organic farm. Now it's an, a former organic farm. Um, the farmers have gotten old enough that they just can't keep up with it anymore. But the hives out there, there is a creek that part of the year actually has water in it and you cannot go across it because the soil is solid clay and you just sink. So we put all of the Langstroths on the backside of that creek because I don't have to check them as regularly. But a drone would be perfect for that because I could fly the drone across the 40 acres check the hives and at least make sure that there's bees coming and going and know that everything looks okay. Make sure that, you know, they're still standing upright. Nothing's knocked them over. Um, using it to evaluate forage to see if there's bees on plants, all that kind of stuff would actually be amazing. There's so many concepts that a drone would come in perfect for. Yeah, I did. I did. I, where did I see? I saw it somewhere that, but essentially um, a drone can mimic the sound of a swarm of bees. So Every now and then, if you fly over a beehive, you get a bit of a reaction. So yeah, yeah, that that may not be the best thing. Um, you could get bees trying to defend and chase off the noisy thing, which will end up in uh, bee souffle <laughs> through the <laughs> propellers, which is not mm -hmm. a good thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, that you would you might have to keep a bit of a safe distance. But with some of the cameras and stuff, you might be able to you know get close enough you could zoom in and see what's going on without being literally like two inches from the front of the hive, that probably would be better. <laughs> but yeah, that's, uh, you know, do your research. You got some time, try to kind of figure out. The other thing you want to know is if there are any beekeepers already in your area. If there are, you don't necessarily want to have your hives, you know, right up against theirs. You want to try to provide space 
and that will help both colonies, yours and theirs, survive better because then they're not competing for the same food stores. If you can spread them out, you know, a mile, two miles, preferably. Uh, and I know over there, that would be a whole different concept. Um, several kilometers. <laughs> well, we, we still work in miles, surprisingly. You do? We, oh we my do God, look at that. Hour. A foreign country that but does something I understand. <laughs> inches and feet we're in. And then degrees Celsius, we're all over the place. Interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. So inches and feet and miles, you yeah. match us. But then in temperature, you go back to Celsius. Yeah. Hmm. Well, in that case, a couple of miles and yeah. you, you know, that's kind of the minimum. Um, the the bigger operations that do it smart or as smart as they can for as many bees as they have, the golden rule that a lot of them have is no more than 40 hives in one chunk. And then there needs to be a minimum of three to five miles between them to the next set of hives. And then they can set up, you know, another 20 or 40 hives. So if you're looking at a small scale situation, you find your neighbor has five or six hives. Um, this is actually something that I think Jeffrey Ann had uh, messaged in and asked about a couple of different times too, is that you might find that a neighbor has four or five hives over here and then several blocks away or a mile or two away, there's a couple more hives. That's really no big deal. Um, if your neighbor has 20 hives and they're, you know, not even a block away from your house, that's probably a bigger deal because they're definitely going to be competing for the resources. So, but yeah, if you can uh, get out there and kind of figure out who has what and what the forage looks like and, you know, maybe talk to some of the the people from a safe distance, <laughs> you, uh, you hopefully can find something that will suit your needs by the time it's uh, spring and, and you can actually get out there and do something. Oh, perfect. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your time, guys. No uh, problem, Frank. Keep up the good work. Yes, sir. You Thank have you. a good night. Get some rest, and I hope your pup does good. Thanks very much. They're up. Appreciate it. Oh, wow. We have been on here for an hour and 15 minutes, um, if you count you and I logging in a couple of minutes early. So, let's see. Um, were you actually paying attention to the chat, Ken? Is there anything in there I need to tackle, or is it all you know, chicken fried ants. Timothy, come back. Uh, what about field runoff? If you, I guess bees are using the water in the fields, uh, and then the, a lot of insecticides, you know, the where they spray the, the fields with. Ooh. Yeah. You have to worry about that. Yes. Also, uh, with the orchards, the same thing there. Uh, so yeah. Uh, no, that's a very valid point. The, the orchards, again, that comes back into, knowing if they use pesticides and chemicals or not. Um, if you can find something that is as close to organic as you can get, that's better because even, you know, th that's one of the bigger problems that we have here in the United States is our almond orchards, which are grotesquely out of control as far as how much area they take up. Uh, you know, they're like, oh, but we just use a fungicide and that doesn't affect the bees, but actually the bees need the fungus because they take that and that yeast and things in there is what they use to ferment the pollen to break it open and make the nutrients more readily available. And then when the fungicide mixes with the pesticides, you get this reaction that is far more deadly than sometimes what either of them would have been on their own. So even though the fungicide, quote unquote, isn't supposed to kill an insect, when you mix it with other things or it gets mixed into their food stores, it absolutely can become a problem. So there's a lot of that to consider. Um, one of the other things, the runoff, that's actually a great thing to talk about, Tim, because if you have crops nearby and they do heavily spray the crops, uh, this is something actually Jake has worried about as well, because they do spray some of the fields near him. 
And he's been lucky enough to get on where they notify him when that's going to happen and he can try to protect his hives. But if you've got a crop that is heavily, heavily, heavily treated, all of the runoff from that, be it from irrigation or from rain, if it goes and collects somewhere, then yes, that is probably going to be a source of contaminant that the bees can pick up and bring back to their colony. So that could be a really, really tricky situation to be in. Um, there's no way to stop bees from going to a water source. It's kind of like the whole, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. Um, <laughs> you can't, once the bees find something that they think is good and it's consistent and always there, you cannot really discourage them from going back to it because they're going to continue teaching each other. Hey, this is the place to go. This is the direction. The water is always here. Um, so that could really be a challenge, but if you're also constantly cycling through your wax and keeping nice, clean wax in there, the wax can do the job of trying to pull some of those toxins away and make it a little bit better. Um, but again, there is no, no good scenario sometimes in those situations. I am going to unmute Jeffrey Ann. I don't know if she ever got herself muted on her side or not, but I'm going to unmute you so that, uh, if you would like, you can chime back in if you have any other questions. That way it's not uh, keeping you blocked out on uh, on our side here. Uh, I hear the little one. <laughs> <laughs> We're back. <laughs> uh, sorry. Yeah, she's making a toilet paper tower. No. Oh. <laughs> oh, sorry. It's a toilet paper car. Well, <laughs> that in in the the year that we just went through, that could be the most valuable car ever. <laughs> yeah, very true, very true. <laughs> so, what are your uh, what are your plans going to be going uh, going forward? On, I know you wanted to have a bunch of different hives. You're trying to convince the you know the the powers that be to let the land be used for more forage and less crop production. Um, what are you going to do to recover? Do you have anything in mind yet? Yeah. Um, we got, let's see, we bought a whole bunch of clover, um, like a cover crop seed. So it's got, it's got a bunch of, sorry, she's like chasing the cat. Hold on. Um, <laughs> going upstairs <laughs> we got a whole bunch of like cover crop seed and um it's got like a uh, sweet clover crimson clover uh dutch clover a whole bunch of that stuff we're gonna plant about five acres of it and now my father-in-law is getting all excited and he's like what other cro clover you know cover crops can we plant to <laughs> to get everything done should we mix it with anything like the, the the various different clovers yeah you can so variety is actually the best thing to have when it comes to the bees because any one thing is going to ultimately be deficient in certain amino acids and proteins that they need so if you only have white clover and nothing else then they will have a nectar source and a protein source but it may not necessarily be the best for them and could still cause them to be weaker in the long run. So if you can mix different types of clovers together, if you can find things that go well with each other, um, a lot of times you can do like clover and hairy vetch and um, even alfalfa, things like that that can kind of be mixed that will act like a ground cover and grow, but provide diversity in a large enough quantity that they can take 
you know, take from this and that and the other that actually would work better than just one monocrop. Okay. Awesome. I'm, I'm still trying to find a honey locust tree. I want to plant some of those because um, it's supposed to bloom like at the very beginning of spring and give a whole bunch of uh, pollen and nectar. We yeah, the, flowering crab apples. Yeah, see, the, the apple trees, actually, the bees definitely do on on most of the varieties and species of uh, of the apples. So that is a good, early, well, actually, do the apples do early, early or late? They're early, like like just barely coming out of winter, right? Yeah, we have a flowering crab apple on my property, and it was the very first thing that bloomed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that is a, that would be a good source, too, um, if you can have certain things like that out there. It's it's really kind of tricky sometimes, actually, to try to go through and do that. And, you know, we also have the best intention, but it doesn't mean that it's going to work either. So if you're doing a lot of the wildflower seeds, you may plant them one year and not see them until a year or two later. Because <laughs> some of them require stratification. You know, like there's there's all this different stuff that has to happen to the seed where in nature, it's going to take the land a while of the critters moving around and the dirt rubbing against the seed to, to etch it enough for the moisture to truly get in there and that it to germinate and grow. Um, other ones, like for us, we have a bigger problem with it down here. You can get a bunch of wildflower seeds and you can plant them, but what they don't ever tell you is that, oh, well, this seed requires a dormant temperature of this for this amount of time, and they start selling them in the spring. So everybody plants them because they want spring wildflowers. And then, you know, 50% of them never come up because they actually need to go through the winter and have that cold and have that stratification and have that dormant period of cold temperature. And then they activate and they grow. So having the different things, clover's not luckily one of those things. It will happily pop up <laughs> right after you put it on the ground. So, but yeah, the diversity is really the best thing that you can do. Having a diverse non mono crop. So if you can have diversity out there, that gives them better nutrition and it will help the hives actually stay more healthy. The other aspect of diversity too is when certain things bloom. So going through and putting, (laughs) going through and putting the um, stuff that's going to bloom early in the year, but having things mixed in there that are going to be growing slowly and will then bloom after that finding anything that can bloom in the middle of the summer. That's a big challenge for us down here. That's one of the saving graces of sunflowers and our mesquite trees is because they do bloom during the times that nothing else is. And so they become kind of a saving grace for the bees and some of those dearth type times. Bees like yarrow because we have a whole bunch of yarrow in the ditches on the farm. That sounds familiar. I also think that uh, I may have heard it as yarrow. Oh, Probably. <laughs> sorry. No, 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 that's fine. Um, trust me, Ken and I are neither speech. one the person to correct anybody on oh, no. slang and speech. Um, I don't know, Ken, yeah, have you ever we, seen? We also say pecan here, so. And I see pecan? them can be fighting words. Con. Yeah. <laughs> so Sue says. Apparently, Sue doesn't have bees. She says, am I the only one on here that doesn't have bees yet? <laughs> well, we can fix that up come springtime. You know, Sue. Well, we can't, but she can. There is nothing wrong with taking the time to learn and be interested in a topic and doing the research and putting in all the forework, effort, forethought, whatever, foresight 
Um, you don't have to go find somebody who's gone out of business and buy a shitload of boxes and comb and uh, <laughs> dive in that way. Um, well, everybody, not to not to have an abrupt end here, but we have gone an hour and a half and uh, <laughs> salivating. You know, we, we've got drinks and food all over the place here now on chat. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. I do want to thank you all so much for tuning in. Thank you for participating. This has been awesome. Um, we will definitely do these again and they will be on random days at random times so that everybody out there who listens and likes the show has an opportunity to join in at some point. Um, we'll try to tailor some of them to where they're more accommodating for people in other countries. We'll try to accommodate, you know, some people on the weekends earlier in the day, things like that. So everybody hopefully will have an opportunity, but um, we will be having a few episodes for the rest of this month. They will come out obviously on your, your prime episodes on Mondays. The last episode for this season will be the Monday before Christmas. And then we will be taking a little bit of time off and we'll come back somewhere around the first or second or third week of January. Give us a little bit of a breather and help us go through and, and kind of get some of the show prep and stuff done to kick off our third season, which who would have thought there would be a third season? <laughs> yeah. Not me. Not when we had that original phone conversation. That was never a blip on my radar. So, um, but again, thank you, everybody. Thank you to everybody who has tuned in. Thank you to everybody who has been very vocal in the chats. Um, that is always mm -hmm. great. I do apologize if anybody threw a question in there and I did not catch it because again, I did find very quickly that if I was trying to keep up with the chats, I was distracted and <laughs> would lose my place of uh, train of thought there. So I uh, hope everybody has a wonderful evening. Be safe. Be good. Stay healthy. And y'all, you know, family, we've got to take care of each other. We worry about all of our family and, and y'all are our family. So we have to take care of each other. Wear the mask, do the social distancing thing, you know, whether just be safe, just be safe. You know, we just got to take care of each other sooner or later. The world, we will be back to a new normal and then it's going to be a whole lot easier, hopefully. And one other thing, keep the rubber side down and the shiny side up. And we'll see y'all next go around. Be good, everybody. Bye-bye. Yeah. Be safe. Bye. It's time for our guys to buzz off, but don't fret. The Hive Jive journey continues with new episodes Mondays every month. Until then, you can follow along with the guys on Facebook and Instagram at The Hive Jive. Thanks for listening and be safe out there. <laughs>